HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Copenhagen is famously one of the most expensive cities in the world, with a lot of famous, expensive restaurants. But it's also a city rife with community kitchens, where you can buy lunch or dinner for just a few dollars. Actually, their Danish name translates more directly to something like people's kitchens. After looking into the right to food and food charities in Italy, I headed to Scandinavia to learn about these people's kitchens and how they might contribute to a more equitable, rights-based food system. When I got to Copenhagen and started asking around, everyone told me I had to visit Absalon. So, I went. I arrived during dinner service. On the outside, it just looks like an old church, this old brick building. But you go inside and there's this huge hall with tall ceilings it's painted all these bright, vibrant colors, and there's tables running the length of the hall, and there's just 200 people sitting, sharing a big family-style dinner, all 200 of them. And I just thought, wow, this is exactly what I imagined. This is what I thought a community kitchen would look like. I came back on a quieter day so that I could sit down with some of the Absalon managers and hear more about the kitchen. I am Kesper, and... Uh... Right now, 
We are sitting in the tower of Absalon, the people's house of Absalon, um, in Copenhagen, Vesterbro. And uh, yeah, so we are located in a former church. And um, now it's not a church anymore. It's a place full of activities and uh, food. My name is Aviaya. I'm the bar chef. <clears throat> I run the bar and make sure that all the activities in the big hall uh, run smoothly. But I think what this house is known for is the community dinner every day at six. Yeah. And they are all placed at tables of eight. So you can sit with people you don't know. And that's the point of it. Like you share the food. So it comes in bowls. It's not one plate like served. It's uh, you have to share yeah. this table. And uh, yeah. Yeah, it's very much our DNA mm -hmm. of this house. Uh, that was the the starting point. You know, we. I mean, what's the easiest way to bring people together? That's by food. You know, everybody got to eat. So that's that's kind of the whole idea behind these community kitchens is to bring people together, to have a shared meal where strangers can get to know one another over food. Craft Verket, another people's kitchen that I visited in Copenhagen, had a similar setup to Absalon, offering both dinners and also other cultural activities. We are at Kraftwerket, which is a culture house of the municipality of Copenhagen, where we have different uh, cultural uh, groups um, doing different projects. And one of that is the kitchen. Uh, so we are making, um, we are having dinners and events every Tuesday. Uh, it's a vegan community kitchen, uh, but um, on the same time we have uh, other Uh, artists uh, doing different projects in the house, which can be upcycling, recycling, uh, more environmentally oriented projects, and then also painting, street art, and uh, uh, some music as well. At both Absalon and Kraftwerket, diners pay a fixed price of about seven or eight US dollars for dinner, while other kitchens operate on a pay-what-you-can model. My name is Olvin. I'm chairman and founder of One Ball. One Ball is a non-profit community kitchen where anyone can walk in and have a dinner without having, having to worry about uh, economy. Uh, it's uh, one of the kitchens, many kitchens around the world uh, where um, the whole economy works around pay what you can, pay what you feel basis, and people can decide how much ever they want to make a donation for each meal. But all are comparatively low cost compared to a typical Copenhagen restaurant, and they're popular. It's crazy. We are we are, we have a sold out dinner every day of the week for 200 people, uh, and has had it for many years now. And I think around 50% every day is uh, new people who have never been here before which is also remarkable, I would say, a hundred new people every day. Um, so it's quite a success. Especially with students. Yeah, I mean, of course, a lot of students use this place and they obviously don't have as much money. Uh, normally we attract also a lot of students that uh, maybe they don't have the same uh, financial background as other groups. It does bring people of uh, different economic backgrounds together. 
but of course it's um, in a general general sense it's mostly students um, who don't mind uh, a crowded space and a noisy environment. As I was spending time in Absalon Craft at One Bowl, eating and volunteering, hanging out, I started to think about the mission and the purpose of these kitchens. I mean, I arrived in Copenhagen with a utopic vision of people of all social classes and backgrounds coming together to share a meal, and that that might be a way to sort of heal some of the divisions of society. I wanted to see solidarity building, communities bringing in marginalized people, but I began to notice that the kitchens didn't seem to exactly include everyone, at least Visually and anecdotally, the people who come to a people's or a community kitchen were quite different from those that I saw at soup kitchens, which provide completely free rather than low-cost or pay-what-you-can meals. At Morning Café, a soup kitchen in Copenhagen's Bronzhoi neighborhood, I sat down with social worker Karina to try and make sense of what I had observed. My name is Karina, and uh, we are now at a... At a cafe, not a normal cafe, a cafe for homeless people in Copenhagen. I asked her, I have a bit this sense, like since coming here and seeing many different community kitchens and also seeing soup kitchens, that it is still like serving different groups. Like not every single person can or does come to a community kitchen. That's true. And I think it's because... When you are homeless, uh, some people, most people in Copenhagen uh, accepts the homeless and and helps them and buy the paper they sell here in Denmark, the homeless paper. But I think not many people would invite invite homeless people, uh, homeless man or woman, in to their community. I, I think many Danish people are a little bit scared to actually... Um, it's okay to help them in the streets, buy the paper and maybe talk to them, but they don't invite them in the community. While at Morning Cafe, I also sat down with Casper. Casper is a street worker for the city of Copenhagen, who specifically works with people who have apartments, but who come down to the streets for social drinking. Twice a week, he picks up people in a bus and brings them into Morning Cafe to eat. I asked Casper the same question. His perspective differed a little from Karina's. We have examples of that happening, but it's quite rare because those people that we work with, they know what they look like. They're very aware of this. So it's more of that, because I'm sure that the, all the families and what you're saying, many would love that. But these people here, they don't want to show themselves for children and for young. I, I mean, they're very isolated. They're very aware of what they look like. Basically, I was hearing from Kaspar and Karina that my idealized vision of this community kitchen were... Everyone, even someone experiencing extreme poverty or homelessness, could come together and find community. I was hearing that maybe that doesn't really exist. Maybe that's not what these community kitchens are. So I brought that question to the community kitchens. 
Although they care about accessibility and affordability, they told me they weren't really focused specifically on helping the homeless or the marginalized members of society integrate into the broader community. We have in the past uh, given away our surplus to different shelters and so on, but it's it's not the main concern. Um, we usually cater the people that come by and uh, we keep the, the prices affordable for everyone. So that's, uh, that's our principle. I was especially curious to hear from One Bowl, the pay-what-you-can community kitchen. I asked One Bowl founder Alwyn whether he felt that the community dining space he was creating and the volunteer community was creating could foster greater understanding across economic difference and between people of different economic backgrounds, including someone experiencing poverty, for example? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. So uh, my focus has been pretty much on one ball and sharing about one ball with, um, you know, friends and family and at work and with volunteers. And uh, in my limited experience, I would say it's created it created a significant bond amidst um, people I know. And I tend to make more friends um, who reflect these values. So in, in my perspective, it's a, it's, it, 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 cre- it creates a significant uh, influence in my, in my immediate neighborhood. But that's where, that's all I know about. So I wouldn't uh, be able to say, make a generic statement for the whole society as such. Coming out of these conversations, I began to wonder, am I even asking the right questions? I mean, should it be the goal of a community kitchen to take on socioeconomic divisions in a society or even in their immediate neighborhood? I mean, these small community kitchens aren't necessarily equipped, for example, to deal with the mental health and addiction challenges that many people experiencing homelessness face, while simultaneously creating a gathering space for some other community members. At the same time, talking to Casper made me wonder, what is really the value of bringing someone who's homeless in to share a meal with other people who have homes? What happens if you take... Those people, many of them have lost all their families to alcohol. And then some suddenly sit there with the families. It's, it's again, this uh, where we want something for them instead of asking, what do you want? And that's where the bus trip is so simple and magic because I found out exactly what they want. And that's what the whole trip is about. And they, come on, butler, we want to go home. After they eat, they want to go fast back because they need to go back and drink. And I run and I say, come here, I'm I'm hurrying. So it's on their terms. I'm not sure if they want to see me and my kids having a nice time. I'm not sure what that would do. It's, uh, I'm not sure if you bring too much together, what it would do. I'm not worried for the, for, for the normal people, for the children, family. That would be not. But it's also, there's a little Sue-ish vibe about it. In a, you know, we invite the weird people 
to sit with us. It's a, oh, it's a fine line, you know. A look can make the difference. It's not only community kitchens or community spaces, but also government social services that have the potential to make someone who's homeless feel belittled or feel ashamed, Casper says. The system is kind of a little... I don't know if my boss listened to this, <laughs> but it's, sometimes the system meets people a little humiliating, I think. You need to go, you pick a number, you're standing in line, and you go, oh, and you have to, t- every time, describe how bad everything is. Casper explained that he tries to make people feel respected rather than pitied, embarrassed, or ostracized through small but significant actions, like... With the bus, it's a little high, the bus, and we have this little box, and when I come, I park, and I run around, because they're ready to get in. I always fill the bus. Sometimes I have to go two times, because there are more than eight. But that that little running around the car, opening and taking the box out, putting, putting it for them, I, I'm... I don't know what words it is, but that's the point, I think. He prides himself on the fact that the people he picks up have nicknamed him their butler. They're not used to being treated like uh, people with a butler. <laughs> and that feeling makes them comfortable. And then there's no follow-up questions other than... But, you know, after a while putting boxes there, I can ask... Do you shower? Can I help you? I mean, then then I can ask the question. In addition to the bus commute to Morning Cafe, Casper has also been working on a project to build a mobile sauna for the people he serves, which he has seen help those with drug and alcohol addictions. He's also been working on building a music room with instruments for people to practice. He believes that these sorts of activities might bring the people he serves more value than going to a community meal. And he also suggested that maybe community meals should include activities in addition to eating, like a concert or a movie or some sort of, you know, simultaneous activity to go along with the food in order to reduce that feeling of being observed. But ultimately, Casper expressed to me a much more pragmatic view of his work. I think my point is to make some good hours for them. I've been working five years. I met maybe a couple of hundred people drinking. I haven't met anyone yet that has quit it. You know, it's, that's that's too much. In the beginning, I thought I could save, but I couldn't. So now I'm just, I'm staying out of that. For the people Casper serves to really change their circumstances, they would need much greater changes than just a free meal or a community dinner. Political ones. So that's what I went to look for, and I found SAND. They're a Copenhagen-based advocacy organization that's made up of local councils of currently or formerly homeless people who work on both local and national homelessness policy. I sat down with SAND member Mike to learn more about the org's goals. My name is Mike, and uh, we are sitting here in Copenhagen at what we call Rådsplassen, which is like uh, a big square in front of our mayor's office. Today is like uh, the international uh, 
homeless day in Denmark. And we celebrate that we are still here and we're still fighting and uh, we're still trying to yell to everyone who wants to listen that we are still seeking help. One area where they're seeking help? Reform for government job searching services. In Denmark, we have this thing called uh, a job center. So basically, if you are without a job, you go down there and they try to help you get a job. But if you're already homeless and you're fighting every day for survival just to get food, just to get shelter, just to get a clean fucking shirt, a shower, how much energy do you have to go to work or to go to 15 interviews in a week or uh, just to, you know, do normal stuff because all your life, all your energy is spent on, yeah, yes, 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 I understand, I have to do all that, yeah, but I still need to see tomorrow in order to do all that. And that means I have to survive today. And when you never break that barrier, it becomes a survival every day. When people don't show up to appointments or activities organized by the job centers, they're fined. Sand argues that employment services should be moved from the job centers to the social services sector, where they hope a more holistic approach would be taken. This campaign is only one piece of Sand's advocacy, but to go through all of their advocacy would require an entire other radio segment of its own. But this campaign, it illustrates the fundamental misunderstanding of homelessness in politics that's at the root of many advocates' concerns. I spoke with another SAND member, Daniel, to understand more. Every time I meet, um, I meet politicians that don't really know what's going on with the, uh, the most uh, social part uh, of, of, of the lower part uh, of the system, especially the homeless and, and the people uh, who's been homeless for many years and got an apartment and keeps on coming back to the street because they haven't learned how to use an apartment. For example, for me, it took two years before I started putting my furnitures up and, and opening my boxes. Two years. I was sleeping outside on the balcony because I couldn't sleep inside. It was too much for me. So there's a lot of problems when you're being on the street. We have PTSD. We have a lot of mental issues that comes. We have a lot of alcohol damage, drug damage. So there's a lot of things. And I've been telling this to politicians for seven years, and still I meet the same thing. I meet that they, they, they turn up to the meetings not knowing what's actually going around just outside the door. There are these stark dichotomies between the experiences homeless people are having and the perceptions of homelessness from well-off Danes. During my time in Copenhagen, I often heard Danes say that the homeless in Denmark were choosing to be homeless. I asked Karina, the social worker at Morning Cafe, about this. I think a lot of people think that way because the the, the welfare system, but it's not the truth. A lot of the people who is homeless is people who has who has had a really tough life. It's the truth that the system can help a lot of people in Denmark, but not all people. And those people that the system cannot help are often the people who end up in the streets. I think I think the politicians will always say that 
we have the best system and everybody can get help, but that's not the truth. It's, it's not. Why do you think there are many people who, who think that way? I think it's, it's because they don't know and because they never have had talked and meet uh, a homeless people, talk to and meet. Um, because the homeless people here in Denmark actually has a story to tell and many of them would like to tell you their story and the politicians too, but not all politicians wants to hear the story. In order to get politicians to care and to make the sorts of policy changes that Sand advocates for, these voices have to be heard. There has to be a greater understanding, a greater awareness of the realities of homelessness, and the homeless themselves have to speak out for the changes that they would most like to see, as Sand helps them to do. But Denmark has a long way to go on this front. Over and over again, I heard that there is little public interest in or awareness around domestic poverty, homelessness, food insecurity, all of these interrelated issues. I spoke with three professors researching food insecurity specifically at the University of Copenhagen. Wesley Dean, I'm an associate professor in the Department of Food Resource and Economics. My name is Kia Dillewsen. I'm also an associate professor here at the Department of Food and Resource Economics. My name is Thomas Lund. I'm an associate professor at the Department of Food and Resource Economics at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. Thomas, Wesley, and their colleague Lotte Holm published an article last September explaining how Danes may deal with rising food prices based on the professor's findings from 2015 about domestic food insecurity rates. Their 2015 survey found that 5% of the Danish population experience food insecurity. In a separate interview, Lotte told me this is the only study to ever be done on Danish food insecurity. 5% might sound like a low number, but even this, many Danes can't fathom in their own country. I think that uh, we, of course, have a left wing and a right wing in Denmark. So if we look at it at the political level, the left wing have always in Denmark been very concerned about uh, uh, the rate of uh, inequality and and uh, of course wanted to make sure that that it doesn't increase too much but even in that part of the the political spectrum there's never been the idea that actual poverty uh, is around in Denmark because we have this general welfare system another reason for a lack of political will may be due to a bias against migrants and refugees in Denmark who may be more likely to experience poverty and food insecurity due to social policies that exclude them and give less benefits to non-citizens. At Morning Cafe, for example, the staff is required to serve only Danish citizens, although Karina says they do not check guest citizenship status when they come in to eat. They are some sort of... Uh, um segregated areas where there are a little lot of uh, uh, foreigners, uh, people that do not are not originally from Denmark. They don't have the same uh, skin color as uh, most of the Danes do. And uh, Lucinda that you were talking to suggested there is probably quite much food insecurity at those places. They also have lower welfare cuts and so forth. But they are not original Danes. So uh, just to say it as it is, the political agenda right now is not supporting uh, people that are not originally from from Denmark in in the same sense. So that could be a sort of another further explanation for the lack of focus on this. 
the four professors are trying to bring more focus and perhaps inspire others in Europe to follow suit. Here's Wesley. There are plenty of things for Danish policymakers to care about right now, and uh, but they're probably really only going to focus on this if the broader public seems to think it's a problem. Because it's not just Denmark where you don't see a lot of food security research. The uh, concept is really not very well addressed in Europe at large, even amongst countries which do have a lot more poverty than, uh, than uh, the Scandinavian countries. Another group working to raise awareness around these issues is Copenhagen-based NGO Project Outside. My name is Kirsten. I'm a communications and disseminations officer at Project Outside. Project Outside combines outreach work in the streets of Copenhagen with knowledge production and dissemination. So, of course, we have to to help the people and help the, the consequences of those exclusionary mechanisms in society. But we also have to do something about the factors in them, themselves. So that's why we have both the, the knowledge production and the dissemination and the social outreach team. Um, and... These two teams works, work closely together. So whenever the social outreach worker sees something in the streets or makes, makes new observations, we talk about it and vice, vice versa. If, if there's some new knowledge that's, uh, that's relevant for us to look into, we, uh, we share that also with the social outreach team. The NGO social workers build trust with the so-called rough sleepers or people sleeping in the street that they meet by returning over and over again and getting to know these people. Many of the people they serve are not in contact with the state welfare system. Our job is not to do stable social work. We believe we are not here to make a parallel system. Uh, we are very fond of the Danish universal welfare system, so um, we always try to uh, also, if we get in touch with someone who can get the help from the system, we definitely uh, seek that uh, way um, but since since our job is not to do stable social work it's this it's the system's um, uh, job we also need to keep experiment and try out new methods and uh, seek out new uh, target groups if if relevant Kirsten says the organization understands that although the help might exist it can be challenging for someone living in the streets to access those government welfare services Kind of, you have to show that you're willing to receive the help, and there is people who reject getting help, um, uh, because, maybe because they don't perceive it as help, or because they have very, very bad experiences uh, with neglect, neglect, and you know, um, being mistreated. Uh, so, for them to to receive help and to trust uh, other people again, there is a quite a lot of trust building process because it's yeah and again if if some of them haven't been in, in contact with with that many people for a lot of years it, it's it's quite a it's a process that can take a long long time like other interviewees that i spoke with kirsten sees that most danes don't recognize this struggle that it doesn't fit with their perception of themselves and their country I think it's the story we tell ourselves about. It's like the Danish identity, national identity, that we we have this amazing welfare state, and and anyone can receive help. So if uh, mm, I think also that's why someone can easily think in them, oh, then it must be a choice if you're if you're homeless, 
because there's no need. You 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 can't just be homeless in Denmark because we have such a such a great system. Um, so, but I think it's the it's the story we tell ourselves, the national identity, the story about who we are, kind of make us not see uh, all all the inequalities sometimes. So I asked her, "What's the solution? Is it community?" A lot of the times, I think we believe, and when I say we, I don't mean project outside, but but us people who are in communities that uh, you know. Oh, they should. Sometimes it seems like it's always community that's the answer, and it's not to say, of course, community is very, very healthy, and a lot of research shows that's uh, that's the way to go. But for this target group, I mean, they're so far out. Uh, it's not the first thing that you focus on. The fir- first thing that you focus on is maybe harm reduction or okay to stabilize the situation. What about community as a way to increase awareness? I think a lot of we all have an idea sometimes that if we if we can just bring people together, if we can just make it visible, there will there would be no uh, prejudice and there would be no exclusion. But but sadly, I I don't believe that is true. Um, uh, and I think there is such big inequalities that they will not disappear just by they will just maybe exacerbate by putting him in in the same room. But I believe that you're right in the fact that I think there is strategies to invisibilize certain groups in society. Strategies like hostile architecture and the criminalization of sleeping in the street. And uh, I think we should be very aware of that. And I think we should, you know, do do our best to uh, to work against that invisibilization. So I don't think it necessarily creates community that people see each other. Uh, uh, I think it, it takes uh, a bit more than that. And it takes like a cultural ch- change and how to make that cultural change. Well, yeah, that's a good question. It's yeah, I think we should start by. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I really don't have a good answer on that one. But in, in Denmark, at least we we should have politicians who didn't you know, uh, legitimize legitimize this kind of discourse or rhetoric about uh, migrants in the streets, which is really, really rough in a Danish context. I came to Copenhagen thinking that I would learn about community kitchens and their ability to bridge social and economic divides. But over and over again, my interviewees spoke to me about political change, changes to politicians' rhetoric, to their priorities, to the country's laws. I heard calls for equal government benefits for migrant communities, for the elimination of detention centers, increased free mental health services, the decriminalization of street sleeping, improvements to job searching services. The list of desired policy reforms goes on. Community, at a community kitchen or elsewhere, may provide some benefits, or, some of my interviewees argued, may not. For the people who are marginalized due to homelessness, food insecurity, their migration status. But it wasn't the solution I heard from those working on the issues and from those who have experienced poverty and homelessness. Before sitting down to share a meal, there needs to be a basic level of needs met and of respect given and received. And it takes political advocacy and political activism to get there. 
You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.